Thank you, Stu. All right. Good morning to everyone. If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn once again to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, this time to chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read this morning, beginning at verse 1, down through just the first phrase of verse 11, will be our text for this, this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you'd be so kind if, uh, to stand, please, out of honor for our God's holy word, as you are able. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Knowing uh, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Do be seated, please. <clears throat> so just a, a little bit of review is necessary of, from what we talked about last week, particularly because of the very first word of this chapter that we've just read. For, he says, we know. And the four is there for a reason. He's, he's thinking back to what he has just finished talking about in the prior chapter. And that, as you may remember from last week, is his encouragement to not losing heart. It was something over and over again Paul stated, not to lose heart because the afflictions uh, that uh, we experience now are preparing us, as he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So, as we've just uh, kind of prayed, we just prayed for those that uh, are ill and have afflictions. We look around this world, there are many reasons for concern and sorrow and uh, even despair if we were without God and without hope in the world. There is much that we look around at and say, oh, even so come Lord Jesus. You know, I think there really is a sense here um, where we long for home. We long for the strife to be over. We long for the wickedness to be over. We long for our propensity to sin to be over. We long for the weakness of our flesh 
to be over. We long for the lack of understanding that we have to be over. And we know that those things will be over when all is fulfilled and all brought to glory by our Lord when, we, when he brings us home. So we long for home. Paul speaks of these things here as well as in other places of the scripture. But he also, remember, is talking in the context of a church that needs a lot of work, that needs a lot of oversight, that needed discipline, that needed correction, that needed further instruction. While we long for home, there's a lot of things still to do that he calls us to do. There are things that cannot be done in our own power, in our own wisdom. The emphasis of this passage here is that you must walk by faith in your ministry for the Savior. And of course, your ministry, certainly this passage could be particularly zeroed in and focused upon those who are, are ministers within the church, officers within the church, those who are pursuing that sort of thing, right? But... All of us have ministries as well as those who have been raised up as part of a kingdom of priests unto God, whether it's in our families, in our workplaces, uh, wherever it is, among our, uh, among our friends, as well as within the church and various responsibilities that people have. We need to walk by faith in those things. It, it, it can be so discouraging that uh, we can pour ourselves into people and then it doesn't seem to produce any results in anyone. I remember years ago when I was in college, I was the chaplain for my literary society on campus. And the society was going through kind of a rough patch as far as its just spiritual zeal. And I felt really burdened by it. I kind of took that on mistakenly more onto myself than I should have. I think this was my responsibility. It's like, no, it's the Spirit's responsibility. But nonetheless, this was my task, and I'm trying to do this, and, and preaching to them and teaching them, and, and um, in, in, at least for a while there, feeling um, fairly uh, ignored <laughs> by, by my fellow uh, literary giants there. Anyway... I remember going into uh, seeing the president of the college, chancellor of the college, and saying, uh, okay, Dr. Bob, uh, I'm explaining the situation to him. He said, Len, are you preaching God's word? And I said, yes. It's like, then let God's word do its work. And I needed to hear that word. I needed to hear that encouragement. And I, so I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So I went out and still tried to do it. Still, still wasn't seeing a whole lot of results on my end of things. Um, and then I got home for Christmas break and I was, had the same conversation with my pastor at the time. And he, uh, he, was a, he could be a very quiet man. Um, and he was quiet on this occasion. I came and said, Pastor Anderson... When you get discouraged and when you feel, you know, how, how do you keep from being, becoming cynical and jaded in the ministry when people don't 
follow the things that you're talking from God's word. And he looked to heaven and pointed up. He says, I look, I look to Christ. And we, he talked about a few more things that, besides that, but that's what I remember, him looking up and seeing Jesus. You know, <clears throat> that's where our faith has to be. In all of the, Paul was dealing with a church that was extremely difficult that were opposing him and dragging their feet and putting brakes on everything that he wanted to do and had for a long time. They were, they'd, they'd turned a corner. They were, he was excited about the changes that he'd seen. There was still more to do. But you can almost sense in this passage that Paul is just like, oh, God. we have a, our saying these days is, I'm just done with it. And I'm sure there were times when he felt like he was just done with the Corinthian church in some ways. And yet he wasn't, and he knew he wasn't, and in a, and in a way, he didn't even want to be. It's just that he just struggled with wanting to be home and wanting to be free and wanting to see all of God's purposes and plans come to fruition and rejoicing in that, and yet realizing there was stuff to do, still things to do. And if those things are going to be accomplished, dear friends, it's going, it, it requires on our part faith in, in our Lord. And we're going to look at the nature of this faith and our need for this faith as Paul lays it out here. Now, take a look at the first five verses once again. <clears throat> he talks a lot about tents and houses and dwellings here. Um, this, the focus of this passage is not about the tabernacle or the temple or anything. He's just using the metaphor, a metaphor that Christ himself used and others have used throughout the scriptures of speaking of our bodies as dwelling places of our, of our souls, as, as the earthly tent, the earthly dwelling place. So if we know that the tent of our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. The first reason that you need faith in this ministry of yours is you need it so that you will have a hopeful perseverance, that you will be able to endure, and not just endure with, you know, resignation, but with joy, with hope. Uh, why is perseverance so necessary? Really, it, as he walks through the reasons here, if you, if you could come up with all of these reasons on your own if you thought about it, but by the inspiration of the Lord, he lays out for us the reasons why perseverance is so necessary. And one of the reasons perseverance is necessary is because our flesh is frail. For those of you that did print out the bulletins, you got a little box of lines there, a little chart. Uh, when we think about the earthly tent, think about the characteristics that are revealed here in these opening verses. The earthly tent, the, our bodies, can be destroyed. They're, they're formed of flesh. Right? And through fleshly means. So that makes them, secondly, temporary. And, and our earthly tents are often burdened with sorrows, with physical and emotional afflictions, with the challenges that come with the weakness of our, that's inherent in our flesh to be able to address even sometimes the most basic of things uh, that are around us. And there's a, he speaks something here about the, the whole idea of being clothed and unclothed and, and all of that. And if you, 
the, the, what he's really saying here is that in our earthly tent, while we have some covering, we're really exposed. We're vulnerable. All right? Now, um, oh, and then the last thing is that uh, we're mortal. The earthly tent is mortal. You think about the frailty that's there and being, as being exposed, uh, we're going to uh, talk about uh, that in just a, a little bit more detail in a moment with verse four. But here in verse, well, verses one through three, he's saying we, we are longing, we're groaning in this tent. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Uh, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be vulnerable. We want an end to our susceptibility to sin and to weakness and affliction and sorrow. And so there is this longing for home, this longing for our eternal heavenly dwelling. So the frailty of our flesh means that uh, we have to strive to endure. And that's where the perseverance comes in. But look at verse 4. Because we see here another reason why perseverance is needed. It's needed because of the desire of our hearts. While we are still in this tent, Paul says, we groan being burdened. This is that speaking to the desire of our heart. Not that we would be unclothed. It's not that we just want to cast on, you know, like a little kid who just, you, some little kids, you know, you just can't keep clothes on them. They just want to throw everything off and just go running. Um, it, that's, that's not the idea Paul's trying to convey, that we're just trying to be free in that way. But he says, no, the desire of our hearts is to be fully clothed, to have an end to the vulnerability, to have an end to the exposure, the, the, the harmful exposure to all that would, would uh, get in our way of getting to our heavenly home. And so he says that we would be further closed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I love this word swallowed here. It is a very uh, intense word. It has the idea of absorbing something completely so that what is mortal is just completely absorbed by life. It can also be a word that's translated with the idea of uh, that, that one force um, causes the end of another so that life brings mortality, genuine life brings mortality to an end. Do you not long for that? Amen. That the eternal life that our Lord has promised to us will put an end to death and suffering and sorrow, decay, corruption. In our heavenly dwelling, that'll all be gone. And I long for that, and I'm sure you do as well. As I was looking at this verse, I was, my mind was drawn to Romans chapter 8. And in verse 19 and following, we read these words. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now, or excuse me, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, kind of the, the promise of the Spirit as we've been regenerated. Remember the, the emphasis upon the ministry of the Spirit in the prior chapter of 2 Corinthians. All right, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now, let me be uh, uh, clear here. Paul is not saying all we want. In fact, he's saying exactly the opposite. He's, he's not saying we don't need the body. He's not saying that our, our, the longing of our hearts is about just getting rid of these, these you know, cranky, creaky, rusty old bodies of ours. It's not about getting rid of the body. It's about having the body perfected, glorified, and, in, and, and living eternally in that state. Paul is not speaking these words merely in the theological context of, of thinking about eschatology and the afterlife and all of that. He's also speaking to people who have been raised in and, and inculcated with the, uh, the ideas of Greek theology and philosophy as it relates to the body. You know, the, the Greek conception of the afterlife is that the soul is separated from the body. Okay? There's no reclamation of the body at all. The body was looked at as just a piece of meat that could be tossed aside. In fact, that was desirable. Paul is arguing directly against that. He's saying, no, what? Yeah, the body is, su is subject to affliction and trial and, and, and the corruption of sin, but um, the Lord's intention was to create us as soul and body together, united. And, as, and we have that to look forward to. He prepared us to be fully clothed in glorified bodies. You know, the Greek conception of, of this separation of soul and body uh, is really the origin of many of our modern ghost beliefs, right, about wanderings and cursings and all this other kind of stuff. Um, it's not that there aren't spirits out there doing harm, but uh, they're not the souls of the departed. The souls of the departed are either with the Lord or they're separated from the Lord in hell. Okay? So, uh, according to the scriptures. So, uh, demonic spirits, absolutely. But uh, ghosts, mm, no. No. Paul here is saying, no, we're, we're, we don't desire just to be separate. We desire to be perfected. We desire to be brought into uh, uh, what we were created to be fully. You know, we, we read about the Lord Jesus, right, after his resurrection, and his, his body, still very physical, he could eat, you could see the wounds, the scars that were there, and yet uh, somehow he could uh, just pass through locked doors. Right. Um, somehow be transfigured and, and, and uh, ascend up to the, the Father. Um, yes, seen, touched, handled all of that and yet perfected 
And the scriptures tell us that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right now, we're clothed metaphorically, as it were, though really, we're clothed in his righteousness. We're clothed by the sanctification of the Spirit. But we long to be clothed even more fully in immortality and glory, a life of eternal, joyful service and praise in bodies that never get tired, in, uh, that will never be corrupted, that will never suffer affliction, and therefore will, and will operate with every fiber of our being being able to be engaged in the service of our Lord and ministry to one another. So that's the desire of our hearts that Paul is speaking about here in verse 4. Now, um, let's, before I move on to the next point here, we have the other column to fill in about the heavenly tent. What, by contrast to that, that frail earthly tent that we have, which is, can be destroyed, it's fleshly formed, well, the heavenly tent can't be destroyed. It's divinely formed, if you will. Rather than temporary, it's permanent. Rather than burdened, it's truly free. Rather than exposed and vulnerable, this heavenly tent covers us fully. Uh, there's nothing left undone uh, as the Lord has provided for us all that we need. And con in contrast to its mortality, of course, the heavenly tent is immortal. And you'll notice that there's an extra blank in this column. And that's because of what we read there in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing, to, to obtain the desire of our hearts, is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. If you're filling out that chart at the bottom of the column, you can write the word guaranteed. Guaranteed. That's a characteristic of this heavenly tent. Perseverance. Uh, unto that end, truly is guaranteed by God himself. Now, I love the, the, uh, the word we have here as well. Uh, he who has prepared us for this very thing. The word prepare here means to carefully fashion or to make something completely ready. To carefully fashion or make something completely ready. This is not an afterthought on God's part. This is part of his eternal plan to carefully fashion us to fellowship with him, to live with him, to serve him here and for eternity. And he's made provision for it all along and will continue to do so. He has prepared this. It's not something we can do on our own. It's his work. And the word guarantee, great word, um, we can also use the word pledge. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, where we read that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge or guarantee of our redemption. Same word, same idea by, here by the Apostle Paul. And not surprising that he would think this way because he is using the same kind of thinking and language in the book of Ephesians as he is here in 2 Corinthians. He's just been talking about the Holy Spirit and the, the glorious ministry that the Holy Spirit has in our lives. And that's why he can say back in verse 1, for 
we know. How can Paul be so confident in looking at the afflictions, looking at the trials that have come his way through the second, through the second Corinthians, through the Corinthians, through the Corinthian church? How can he be so confident? It's not because he looks on himself and goes, well, you know, I am the great apostle to the Gentiles and I'm all gifted and I'm smarter than they are and I blah, 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 blah. No, he is looking upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit and knowing that what God has set out to accomplish, God will accomplish. And he will do so in a glorious way. John Calvin says at this point um, on verse 5, this knowledge of the certainty that he has, this, uh, of the pledge of the Spirit of God, he says, this knowledge takes its rise from the revelation of the Holy Spirit, the revealing of the Holy Spirit in their lives, as well as what the Holy Spirit reveals, I think. Maybe both ideas in view there. But we know. We have a guarantee from God himself that we will not linger on in this corrupt state, but that by his grace, we will be glorified with him forever. But we need to believe that. So you need, you need faith to not, again, not just endure with resignation, but with hope and confidence, joyfully and hopefully persevere. Not surprisingly, what follows right along with that from verses six through eight is uh, the necessity for having good courage. And you'll notice in these verses, he repeats this phrase uh, twice. <clears throat> we are always of good courage. And then, yes, in verse eight, yes, we are of good courage. Paul is... Um, saying not only the condition of his own heart, but I think implicit in this is be of good courage. Be strengthened. Do not be afraid because perseverance is a challenge. Perseverance is in the face of many obstacles and opposition and weakness. And it's not for the faint of heart. Be of good courage. I want you to notice, if you, have, uh, if you did print it out, you'll see there, um, this little chiasm that's here in verses 6 through 8. It's really uh, just this wonderful little nugget that uh, we, need to, we need to take it all in so that we understand the true import of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm sure all of us have probably quoted that particular phrase, oh, walk by faith and not by sight, umpteen times, without giving any consideration to the context. Because it's one of those things that is a general principle, right? That can apply across the board. But I think you'll have an even greater appreciation when you see, see it in its context as Paul intended. So he begins with, you can see the pattern here, home in the body, away from the Lord, walk by faith, not by sight, away from the body, home with the Lord. Look at the flow of that. Home in the body, away from the Lord. Home in the body, away from the Lord. What's going to be more prominent? Home in the body, away from the Lord. Sight or faith? It starts with sight. We're at home in the body. That's what we see, right? It's temporal. That, and if we stop there and camp there, well, we are going to truly be miserable. But Paul is saying, nope, nope, that's not where we're stopping. 
We need to walk by faith, not by sight. And if you walk by faith, not by sight, you're looking at uh, the prospects of being away from the body and home with the Lord, which is better. You need faith for a steadfast courage while we are struggling with the issues of walking by sight and the challenge of trying to walk by faith. But when the faith is realized, that and knowing the promise that that faith is going to be realized and fulfilled and utterly answered with, with nothing left undone, then we can be of good courage. Even as we struggle through the sorrows, afflictions, opposition, all of those things that we experience now in this life. But you need courage, but not just courage like, oh, I'm just going to you know, buck up and take it. But courage arises out of faith in the God who has promised that we actually do have a home with him and will have for eternity. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 is familiar to all of us. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a courageous act. Courage that the Lord gives us. Look again at chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 18. Remember, we noted there that the Lord is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Verse 18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then he says, For we know that no matter what happens to our earthly bodies, we have an eternal one with our God. You know, our eyes are not, should not be fixed upon the things of this life. Told elsewhere, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. To walk by faith and not by sight in the particular application that's here really has to do with persevering, enduring by faith in the work that God has called us to do now, no matter how difficult it is. We don't look at the circumstances. We look, keep our eyes fixed upon our Lord Jesus. Serve, serving him faithfully and with joy, hope, and steadfast courage. You know, I want you to think about this phrase. When you look at absent from the, away from, uh, at home in the body, away from, away from the Lord, away from the body, at home with the Lord, faith really blurs the line between earth and heaven. In theological circles, sometimes this, this concept is referred to as the already not yet type of principle. We recognize that some things uh, we're experiencing now as if they were done, and yet the full comprehension of them and completion of them is, is still yet to come. Kind of like in, back in Ephesians chapter 1, it's a good example where the Lord is, says there that, uh, that Paul says there that God the Father has seated us with him in the heavenlies. Well, um, I love our little church here, but I don't think it quite stacks up to the glories of heaven. But yet in a very real way, I'm already seated in the heavenlies. My position is secure. My heart is secure. My destiny is secure. But there's a not yet fulfillment yet to come where we see the, the, all the benefits that 
that because of the frailties and corruption of this life are, are, are being held uh, in check uh, the, until all is fulfilled and we can know the fullness of God's glories in every way. But by faith, we can live, and Paul is encouraging us to live in the understanding that God has already fulfilled this, he's completed it, it's done. And so in a very real way, though, yes, our feet are very much planted on terra firma here. Uh, by the same token, we're already seated with him in the heavenlies. So that's what I mean by faith, blurring the lines between earth and heaven. Third, look at verse 9. Whether we are at home or away, okay? It, it, though Paul is going to say, and we're going to look at this here in just a minute, uh, that yeah, it's a lot better to be with the Lord. You know, whether it's home or away, what is our duty? Do we just sit around moping, waiting for heaven to show up? No. We have things to do, as I said before. So Paul says here in verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So I put here, if you're following along in the notes, we need faith for a determined service to our Lord. Now the word aim has the idea of an earnest endeavor. This isn't anything casual. Uh, any of you uh, that might do bow hunting here or like to shoot, do archery. Um, how well do you how well do you shoot if you're kind of nonchalant about it? Well, here I'll just kind of pull something back and let it fly. Is that really going to work? And yet sometimes we approach our Christian life that way. Well, go to church, read the Bible every once in a while. Yeah, good. I'll think about it every once in a while. But I got all this other stuff to do. How earnestly are we endeavoring to serve our Lord? And yet realizing, just as Paul has recognized and has acknowledged, that the, the, the efficiency and the results and everything else are solidly in God's hands, not Paul's. And yet you can see Paul pouring his heart and his energies into the Corinthian church here, giving us this example of what it means to, to basically take aim at the service that God has, has called upon us to do, and to do so with some determination and earnestness, whether in this life or the next. You know, this is another reason why all these ideas that are, that okay, I'll go ahead and say it, that, that float around about us floating around on clouds with little harps in our hands and staring dreamily off into eternity are totally bogus. Now, we will have a life of determined, joyful, tireless, thrilling service to our Lord in creativity and mutual ministry and every other way. No, there's going to be an earnest endeavor. And in this life, we need to start practicing it. Remember, faith blurs the lines between this life and the next. Let's live as those who are already eternal. Motivated by the knowledge of God, the, by the knowledge of the accountability that we have to God and to Christ, motivated by the confidence that we have that we will stand before him, this should all cause us 
to make it our aim to please him. Because if we are ashamed of him, it tells us that he will be ashamed of us before the Father. Take a look over, if you'll turn please, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. In Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to turn or to turn your eyes to uh, verse 21. Familiar passage again. But I want you to think about this as I read through. Note the connection between what Paul is saying to the Philippian church and what he has been saying to the, the Corinthian church. And particularly think about the connection to your heart's desire that we talked about just a few minutes ago from verse 4. Beginning at verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And really, that thought that Paul has as he's wrestling with his heart's desire, you know, I, I want to serve you, I want to minister to you, I see that it's necessary, I'm content, and yet, oh, I want to be with Christ. I want to be with Christ. He's longing for home, and yet the work is before him. And he, by faith, the faith in that promise of the eternal home gives him the strength and steadfastness to carry on the things God has called him to do in this temporal home. So you need that faith if you're going to serve him with determination and zeal. And that brings me back to uh, 2 Corinthians, once again, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> the fourth reason that you need faith. You need faith so that you will have uh, an accountable witness. An accountable witness. When you get down to uh, verse 11 there, that first phrase, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That we persuade others sums up all of the things that Paul has been talking about in terms of things to do. And how are we going to serve him? How are we going to please him? It's through persuading others. It's through speaking the truth of God into this fallen world. And to do so with zeal, to do so with, with joy, to do so with steadfastness, and with an awareness of our accountability before him. These are sobering words here. It is time for us to shake off all of our negligence in this area and to be bold. Look at what it says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord all about? Well, we can talk, first of all, about what's going on with the judgment seat of Christ, who is our judge, our priest, and our king. When we stand before Christ, we're standing in our true character before Christ, our judge. If there's ever a time when you want to be fully clothed, it's then. 
Certainly recognition of that accountability should be a cause for reverent care to live according to what pleases him. And Paul says to the Colossian church in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As we stand before him, there's going to be no dodging the issue. And we will be accountable as we read there in verse 10 for those things that are done in the body, whether good or evil. And, on, and having said that, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Some translations translate this as the terror of the Lord. Now, a little Greek grammar lesson. Actually, we have the same kind of construction in English, uh, but it's, it, we talk about it a lot uh, in Greek. And when you have these of phrases, in this case, like the terror of the Lord or the love of Christ or, or something like that, you have to ask, is it, you ready? Is it a subjective or is it an objective construction? Now, we usually think subjective means, well, anything we want it to mean, and objective means it has a specific definition, but these words are not being used in that way. It has to do with what is the subject and what is the object of the action or the thing. So in this case, when we're talking about the terror of the Lord, there's two ways you can take it. If you take it as a subjective, that means you're saying the Lord's terror knowing the Lord's terror, that it belongs to him. So does that mean, is God afraid? No, that's obviously not right. So it must mean the, the terror that he invokes in others or something like that. Or the, uh, uh, the uh, objective construction would be that there's a fear that should be of the Lord by somebody else. And that's the best way to read this here. Knowing, therefore, the, the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So, <clears throat> I want you to ask yourself this. To whom is the terror of the Lord aimed? At whom is it aimed? Where, uh, who should be terrified of the Lord? Let's put it that way. The wicked. Right? Now, at the same time, though, because we are still in our fallen flesh, because we are still somewhat unclothed as far as what the, the full clothing and the full end of all sin and corruption and, and all of that are done, done with, we still, we still have an obligation to confess our sins, for example. We still have consciences that instruct us when we sin against our Lord. Well... So there is that fear and that reverence before him. But yet I want to remind you that even though we, don't, we do not wish to be exposed to this judgment, do you remember what we've already seen twice at the end of, of chapter 4 and here again in chapter 5, that our God has prepared us for glory. So when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, this I've heard this passage preached by well-meaning but misguided guys that get up and use this as a club to try to terrorize people that you're going to stand before God and every single thing you've ever done is going to be exposed and everything you've done and, and it's, it's trying to guilt trip them into the kingdom. And that's not what's going on here in my estimation. The things that are done in, in the body 
whether good or evil? Will we have to answer for those? Yes. How do we answer? Christ paid it. We've been prepared for this. Our Lord is the one who answers for us and intercedes for us. Lord, you as a judge know you gave yourself for us. You prepared me for this. And so when we say we know the terror of the Lord, we persuade others. At the heart of that statement is love for others that we see who are subject to God, to the terrible wrath of God. And because we know that that is the case, that the Lord, the Lord's terror is great and that people ought to be and will be justifiably terrified when they stand before him unclothed. We persuade others, be clothed. That's really going to follow along really well in the later part of this chapter when Paul describes himself and those that stand uh, as, as preachers of the gospel, ministers of the gospel, as ambassadors, those who, who are there to encourage people to be reconciled to God. So we should not just take this as this is only punitive. Um, you know, when we stand before, before Christ, uh, this isn't just about getting, you know, the, the proverbial, you know, 40 stripes save one. There's also, we know from other passages of Scripture that this is also a time for reward and blessing for those who stand before Christ, having been justified and clothed in his righteousness. Charles Hodge said this, the sacrifice of Christ avails for the sins committed from the foundation of the world to the final consummation. When we stand before him, his, there's not a single sin that he died to, to cleanse that will be held against you. It's under his blood, it's done. He prepared you for that. All rewards though, keep this in mind, they all begin with the work of Christ. Again, to quote Calvin, after he has received us into favor, he receives our works also by gracious acceptance. I mean, you think about the best that you and I can do. The best. I mean, absolute superlative, knock it out of the park. The best. Are they worthy of acceptance by our God? No. But he accepts them anyway, out of grace and mercy for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whom we are hidden, in whom we received an inheritance as fellow heirs with him, in, who, in whose righteousness we are now and will forever be eternally and fully clothed. So be of good courage so that you will seek to persuade others, knowing the accountability that, under which we all stand, and knowing that you possess, by God's good grace, the solution to be able to speak to others. That Jesus Christ died and rose again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. You know, these things that Paul, the Apostle's been talking about, particularly the persuasion of others, uh, they're a major factor in this whole idea that we've been exploring through this book of the tearing down of strongholds. If we're going to persuade others, I mean, we're, we're taking it 
to the enemy, right? Not that the others are the enemy, but the adversary is. We're striving by God's grace to call them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. So we strive to tear down strongholds by faith with, with courage and determination, persevering, and yes, often in the face of opposition. So that's why faith is in your ministry and walking by faith and not by sight is so important. As we're longing for glory, just as Paul was longing for glory, longing to rest from labor and strife, longing for our final glorification. Yeah, we're longing for that. But as you're longing for that, make it your aim to persevere in faithful witness to the one who alone can and will bring you safely home. Let's pray. Our gracious God, how thankful we are that as we long for home, we know that it is not a hopeless longing, but a longing for something that we know is coming. Whatever your time is and whatever you have for us to do, enable us, Lord, to walk by faith, to be confident and steadfast, determined, courageous, as we persevere through this life. We know, Lord, that this earthly tent is subject to so much trauma, but our heavenly tent is impregnable by your grace. And we long for that. We look forward to it. We thank you for the promise that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. In the meantime, let us be faithful to serve you, making it our aim to earnestly endeavor to call others out of darkness into light. In Christ's name we pray.